What's up, everybody, and happy Easter to all of you out there. Welcome to this latest episode of the First and Foremost Podcast with your host, Quentin Douglas. And I'm Jimmy Covington. What's going on, y'all? Yeah, man. How you doing, Jimmy? I'm doing good, man. How you doing? Pretty good. Got me some good old barbecue in my stomach earlier today for Easter, so I'm a little stuffed right now, but, uh, you know... I'm See, I ate, I ate barbecue earlier this week. See, today I had some some dressing, some greens, sweet potatoes, some macaroni and cheese, you know, some cake. You know, so, you know, I mean, re- I ate real good today, man. Can't go wrong with that classic Sunday dinner, bro. Can't go wrong, especially when grandma cook it. <laughs> man, you're not lying. But, man, let's get right to this show. We got a lot of good content lined up for today. Uh, so, that started off recently, the 2020 Hall of Fame basketball class was inducted, and that class was headlined by NBA greats, uh, the late Kobe Bryant, Kevin Garnett, and Tim Duncan. So, we wanted to kind of do a start, bench, cut uh, activity with that. So, to start it off, Jimmy, out of those three, who would you start, who would you bench, and who would you cut? You already know where I'm going. I'm starting Kobe Bryant, of course. I'm benching Tim Duncan, and I'm cutting Kevin Garnett. And uh, here's why. First of all, you know Kobe's been my favorite player ever since I was a kid. You know, the rings, the all-defensive selections, the all NBA all-teams, all-NBA teams, uh, the numbers speak for themselves, man. Five-time champion, you know, one-time MVP, which is wrong. We all know that. But Kobe Bryant, man, uh, I could never bench Kobe Bryant. The leadership, the intensity, the attention to detail, the creativeness on offense, the 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 leadership, the dog mentality on defense. I got always got to start Kobe. You know, Tim Duncan is the greatest power forward the game has ever seen. Uh, does it on both sides, and you know he's a consummate pro leader. Never had anything bad go off the field, off the court. Excuse me. You know, KG, uh, one of the most intense players the game has ever seen. You know, he was good on offense, great on defense. He got a defensive player of the year award. But, you know, I think he's a little bit below Tim Duncan in terms of power four rankings. So that's, that's why I decided to go with Timmy Timmy D instead of KG. Well, I just want to let you know, bro, you're wrong. I know you're a little biased, like you said, because you're a Kobe fan. But I'm going to break this down real nice and simple for you. So I'm going to start Tim Duncan. One. You know, we already know he's the poster child of consistency, the big fundamental. He could do no wrong. And no one talks about Tim Duncan. Would you know if it weren't for that shot by Ray Allen in 2013, Tim Duncan would have six rings and be 6-0 and in the NBA Finals just like Michael Jordan? And like you said, he is the great – he's arguably the greatest power forward of all time. And then where I had to split it between him and Kobe, his career was drama-free. We know Kobe, he had the situation with Shaq. And then after, you know, Shaq left town and the Lakers struggled, Kobe wanted out and he demanded a trade. And the only thing that really kept him around was the heist that they pulled off for Pau Gasol, which he's an underrated player in my opinion. Uh, but for me, Tim Duncan is the closest thing we've seen to Bill Russell. And we know how dominant Bill Russell was. 
And then looking at the accolades, they line up pretty evenly. But Tim Duncan has more NBA MVPs, and he has more finals MVPs. So then moving on the bench, I benched Kobe Bryant, the late, great Kobe Bryant. Uh, you know, we have to give him his props. He's the closest thing we've seen uh, to Michael Jordan uh, in terms of playing style. Uh, he's easily one of, one of the greatest scorers to ever do it. Uh, and like I said, I just had to split hairs between those two guys. Uh, you can argue that Kobe did have the highest peak of the two, uh, considering that he was the best player in the NBA at points in his career. But looking at Tim Duncan's consistency throughout his entire career, uh, I think that's what gave me the edge for him. And, of course, I'm have, having to cut KG. Don't get me wrong. I am a, a fan of Kevin Garnett, uh, just like you are. But when you have him up against guys like Kobe Bryant and then you have Tim Duncan, who plays the same position but was marginally better, uh, you have to take that into account. And then looking at Kevin Garnett's career, he didn't have a competent team around him in the Western Conference the first, like, 10 years of his career. I looked at it. He lost in the first round seven straight times. And then he finally got to the Western Conference Finals in 04, but they failed to win there. And then the next thing, I definitely don't like him after he went to the Celtics because they just made it seem like they were a dynasty. And they only won one championship ring. And they talked the most crap out of anybody I've ever heard. So, with that being said, like I said, I'm starting Tim Duncan, I'm benching Kobe, and I'm cutting KG. You know, I don't really have a problem with you starting Tim Duncan, honestly. I think it's more of a preference thing where both guys are equally great. They have similar amount of accolades. And like you said, you said, you know, with Tim Duncan, it was the drama-free thing, which I understand. But like I said, you know, I'm biased towards Kobe, you know, which I shouldn't be. But I, I watched so many of his games, and I knew what he can do on the court and how he can take over a game in an instant. And I was like, you know what? With that type of guy, you always got to have that guy starting for my team because, you know, the team could be down. You know, Kobe can take over, give you 60 just like that. But, you know, Tim Duncan could control the ball, could, could control the game on both ends of the court. You know, and you said about the consistency, which was, you know, that's the amount of consistency he had was, you know, immaculate for so long and how how high of a level he was able to do it. But like like you said, I think Kobe's peak was a little higher than Tim's was. Uh, but like I said, at the end of the day, it's all about preference. And in terms of KG, you know, I think that was kind of an easy choice to cut KG. He wasn't – he was a great yeah, player, but down. he wasn't He wasn't quite the level of Kobe and Tim Duncan. I think that's pretty obvious. And I think – I didn't like it when he went to Boston either because he beat my Lakers. He beat us down, actually. You know, beat us in six. We look real soft. And, you know, the next time around, we had some form, you know. And I know many people don't know that KG almost became Kobe's teammate. And that would have been a sight. That definitely would have been a sight to see. So, you know, I don't really have a problem with it. But like I said, I'm starting Kobe, benching Tim Duncan. I'm cutting KG. Yeah, no doubt, bro. I think we agree on a lot of the same points. But moving on to our next topic, um, the NBA playoffs were supposed to start yesterday, actually, if it weren't for this current coronavirus hiatus. So that made us reflect on our favorite NBA championship team. So, Jimmy, who would you say is your favorite team to win it all? I would say the 2009-2010 Los Angeles Lakers uh, when we went to head-to-head to head with Boston. 
uh, in the seven-game final series. Uh, I think that around that time, that's when I really started to understand basketball. And, you know, I understood, understood the greatness, and I was able to appreciate the beauty which the Lakers team played with. They had, you know, Kobe, Pau Gasol, Andrew Bynum, Derek Fisher, Sasha Vujicic, Lamar Odom, you know, Shannon Brown coming off the bench. You had uh, you had those guys. I, and uh, Ron Artest, how can I forget about Ron Artest? He was an uh, integral part disrespect. of it. Oh, it's not disrespect, man. I, I'm not perfect. I forget stuff. <laughs> but, you know, he, he made some big shots, you know, throughout that season. And, for, made, you know, for me, <laughs> for me, for me, man, it was a joy watching that team. Uh, it's really a shame that they not they're not on NBA 2K. But that's a, a de- another debate for another day. But that was definitely my favorite NBA Finals team. You know, just the continuity they played with. You know, they played a, a beautiful game. The triangle is a beautiful system uh, when you have the correct players to run it. And I think they ran the, the triangle to perfection. You know, Pal Gasol with the scoring and uh and the post and not passing out of the post. You know, Andrew Biden could pass the rock. Well, we know what Lamar Odom was. He was the first of the, one of those, one of the first, you know, 16 point forwards in the league. You know, and you know what Kobe was. Derek Fisher was a big shot maker. You know, Shannon Brown brought the energy off the off the bench with the the thunderous dunks. And, you know, Luke Walton and Sasha Vujicic, you know, Jordan Farmer, all those guys, you know, played pivotal roles off the bench. And that was just one of my favorite, you know, complete teams of their decade. Yeah, I can't go wrong with that. I know how big of a Lakers fan and a Kobe fan you are, so I, I definitely understand why you picked them. I think you probably already know where I'm going with this one. You know, <laughs> I'm a huge LeBron fan, um, which I do know one of the biggest knocks on him in his career at first was not having a ring, which he finally got one in 2012. Uh but my favorite championship team that he was on was for his third ring with the Cavs. And to me, you have to take into account, like, everything that was going on that season. Like, you had Steph Curry, um, who was back-to-back MVP. You had all this talk about the Warriors, who were 73-9 and nine that year. And it was at that point, like, okay, Steph Curry may be the new face of the NBA. But then, you know, NBA playoffs rolled around. That's where the men separate from the boys. And finals rolled around. And that was LeBron's probably most dominant series that I've – well, most dominant final series that I've seen him play in outside of probably uh, that 2013 series towards the end against the Spurs. Uh, But he averaged 30-11-9 in that series. And with all due respect to Dwayne Wade, I honestly believe that the LeBron James-Kyrie Irving duo was even more potent when you take into account Dwayne Wade was on the tail end of his career. And it was pretty obvious that he was on the decline starting with that 2013 and 2014 finals against the Spurs. Uh, But looking back at that finals, we all know all the uh, odds were stacked against the Cavs. They were down 3-1 in that series. And, you know, all the criticism was piled on to LeBron. But him and I will say Kyrie Irving, I'll give him his credit too. Uh, game five, they took over, went for 41 apiece. Game six, LeBron came with 41 again. And then game seven, we know how much of a dogfight that game was. 
But then down the stretch, you probably had two of the most iconic NBA Finals moments to ever happen with the LeBron, uh, the block on Andre Iguodala, and the Kyrie Irving step back three that he hit over Steph Curry. Uh, so for me, that series officially cemented LeBron's legacy as the GOAT, and that's why that team stands as my favorite NBA championship team. I don't know about the GOAT talk, but that was definitely one of my favorite playoff series. Uh, those last, you know, four games solidified what a dog is supposed to look like, and LeBron James and Kyrie Irving were, were nothing short of being dogs those last four games. Uh, I, I've never seen LeBron so determined, and, you know, it was a sight to see. But for me, you know, like I said, the Lake, back to the Lakers, uh, that was one of my one of my favorite playoff runs. You know, they beat the young Oklahoma City Thunder in round one. They swept the Utah Jazz, you know, with Carlos Boozer and Darren Williams and Andre Karolinko, Ronnie Brewer, Mehmet Okor, all those guys. They swept them in round two, and they beat the Phoenix Suns in six uh, in the conference finals. Uh, you know, that iconic jump shot uh, in the fourth quarter game six when uh, Kobe tapped Alvin Gentry on the behind after he made the shot. I always think of that I moment when that. I think I always think about that when I see Kobe. Uh, you know, think about Kobe's playoff games in this series. Kobe was on another level, um, all around play. Uh, he averaged thirty four points a game, seven rebounds, eight assists, nearly a steal, and he averaged a block a game in forty one minutes. Uh, Kobe was on fire that series. Shot fifty two percent from the field and forty forty three percent from three point range. So I think that was one of Kobe's most impressive playoff series. And, uh, you know, Pau Gasol chipped in, too, averaged 19-7, to World Peace, uh, averaged 14. Andrew, uh, Lamar Odom averaged a double-double. Fisher even chipped in double figures. So I think, you know, just that, that run and the dominance I saw by Kobe Bryant over that run, they cemented, you know, that is my favorite playoff, as my favorite championship team. Yeah, I definitely give credit where credit is due. That was, that was no doubt a great playoff run by Kobe Bryant and the Lakers that year. And while we're talking about the two, I will say I really hate the fact that the basketball guys didn't allow us to see those two match up in the finals, which I think the best chance for that was probably that 08-09 season when uh, LeBron was still with the Cavs and they lost to the Magic. Yeah, I'll never they definitely lived was. It down, bro. I'll never I saw live it, it down. <laughs> I saw an interview. I saw an interview when they talked that Kobe and LeBron talked about it, and you know LeBron said that he let Kobe down because he didn't make it. But I was I was looking forward. I I definitely want to see that. That's always one series that I always want to see that we never got to see. But you I knew, do think. Oh, go ahead. Because you knew Kobe was going to be guarding LeBron, and you knew LeBron was going to be guarding Kobe. I think that's what's missing in the game today. You don't see a lot of superstars, you know, that's guarding each other. And, uh, you know, I like to see a lot more of that. But, you know, the game has changed. You know, it's more uh, focused on offense and, you know, preserving, you know, for the playoffs. So, you know, I understand the game has to evolve. But I definitely like to see, you know, superstar guarding superstar. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. I miss those players that, you know, have that dog mentality of just, you know, getting after their opponent's head. And I definitely think that's something that's majorly lacking in today's league. So as we continue through the show, the next topic of discussion, we have our top five non-big man scores in the NBA. So Jimmy, who are your top five? So at number one, I got Kevin Durant. At number two, I have James Harden. 
Number three, I have Kawhi Leonard. Number four, I have LeBron James. And number five, I have Stephen Curry. <laughs> so, you know, Whoa. let me t- I want to t- <laughs> Let me tell you why. Okay. I, I don't really think KD as much as a debate, uh, a career 27 point per game score with shooting splits of 49% from the field, 38 from three, and 88 from the free throw line. Uh, when it comes to KD, man, K, we've, the league has never seen nothing like KD. We've never seen a person that's nearly seven feet with his jump shot and his ball handling ability. You know, the way he does it is it's so effortless and his efficiency. I think that's what that's what had Kevin Durant at the top of my list. And, you know, James, James Harden, uh, you know, his run in, uh, in Houston has been unprecedented. Since he's been in Houston, he's averaged out nearly 30 points a game, you know, six assists, almost eight rebounds. You know, and he's been, you know, an offensive dynamo, especially the last few years. We we haven't seen that type of scoring since Kobe Bryant. And uh, I had Kawhi over LeBron James, but here's why. Uh, I know people are going to think I'm crazy, but in terms of scoring, you know, LeBron James shoots a lot of shoots a lot of shots inside the paint, so that kind of explains why his field goal percentage is so high. But but for 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 me with Kawhi, uh, it's Hater. it's all of, it's all about you know total offensive game. I think Kawhi's a better shooter than LeBron. But LeBron is better in the paint than Kawhi is. And I think Kawhi plays more of his back to the basket and he has more of a post game and a better mid-range game. So I took his, you know, his complete offensive game into consideration when I ranked those two. You know, and for LeBron, you know, he's a 27 point per game scorer. He could easily be over 30, but he distributes the ball at a at a high rate for any player, not just a small forward. Uh and I think people are gonna go think people are gonna say this was disrespectful, but you know, I look at, you know, the complete offensive game, not just, you know, not just the numbers. I look at the way you put the ball in the basket. And, you know, a lot of LeBron's shots come in the painted area. Now, he can shoot the ball. He's got a lot better in shooting the ball over the last six or seven years. And now for Steph Curry, I had him at five. Uh, He's the smallest, uh, you know, of the five, but he's the best shooter of the five. Uh, We know Steph Curry is the greatest shooter the game has ever seen. It's it's really not up for debate. Uh, And, you know, he does it on the – Listen, listen. You know, he he ever. You know, listen, man. I know he's a great shooter and all. And he can get to the paint, but you know, he's too small. He doesn't have a back to the basket game, and obviously because he's a guard. You know, a lot of guards don't have that. But you know, like I said, I took a complete offensive game into consideration. He's the best shooter of them all, but I think he's the worst finisher in terms of getting to when it comes to at the rim. So you know, I had to had to penalize wow. him a little bit for that. If I'm gonna give if I'm gonna give somebody credit. For being good at the rim, I'm also and I'm gonna take away from somebody that's not good at the rim, regardless of size. LeBron James is good at the rim, but I'm not saying he's good at the rim because of his size. LeBron James is just good at the rim. Steph Curry is just is not as good at the rim as those other four guys. That's why I had it like it is. Look, I don't I don't even know what to say to you right now. This is disrespectful. But I'm gonna try to ignore the blasphemy you just said and give my top five list. First, I want to give my disclaimers. I did not include LeBron because I consider him a power forward. Two, I didn't include KD because he's a big man. He's seven feet tall. I don't care what you say. So, with that being said, number one for me, easily James Harden. This dude has taken his game to a whole nother level these last few seasons. We've seen that with these last few, like, what, last two, three, four seasons he's had MVP worthy seasons easily uh just the way he can shoot 
you know, his handle, his ability to get to the hole, draw contact, get to the line where he's extremely efficient, uh, that can't be ignored. So with that being said, uh, he's easily my number one scorer currently in the game. Number two for me, Steph Curry. Like you said, greatest shooter of all time, easily. I don't know how in the world you got him fifth, but this dude has literally transcended the way that we see the way the NBA is played today because of his ability to literally shoot as soon as he crosses half court. Like, we haven't seen anything like him to this day. And uh, number three, which you probably would definitely disagree with, but I'm going with my guy, Damian Lillard. I mean, this guy, if it weren't for Steph Curry and James Harden, he'd easily be the best point guard in the Western Conference right now. This dude can shoot just as equally as good as them. He can get to the hole. He has a mid-range game. And he's efficient when it comes to shooting from the free throw line. And he's a good percentage shooter from behind the three-point line. Uh, and fourth for me, you'll probably disagree with this one too because I know for some reason you don't like him. But Luka Doncic is one of the top scorers to me in the NBA right now. This dude, he can shoot. He has a step back. He has the mid-range game. Get to the hole. He can hit you with a floater every now and then. Like, this dude is unstoppable. And it's just his second year in the league. So just imagine where he can go. Like, most NBA players don't really hit their prime till they're like 24, 25. And this dude's already averaging like almost 30 points a game in the NBA just coming straight from overseas. And number five on this list, got to give props to my uh, guy Kawhi Leonard. Uh, just watching the way he's transformed his offensive game from the moment he stepped in the league. Uh, he clearly has the best mid-range game in the NBA right now. You mentioned he has a back-to-the-basket game. He gets to the line, gets to the hole. He's an efficient shooter. And just taking all that into account, uh, he's definitely a top five scorer to me in the NBA right now. That's not a big man. I don't. I don't think your list. I don't think your list is egregious at all. To be honest with you, I, I actually like their list. But you know, like you said, like we all know, sports is all opinion. So for me, you know, I had Kawhi as high as I did because you know his game is is a throwback. I like like you said, he's probably the best mid range shooter in the game. Uh, he has the clip from deep, and he can put it in the basket around the painted area. So I take that into consideration. With Luka Doncic, you're right. Uh, he's going to be a, one of the – I believe he'll go down as one of the all-time greats. But I think one thing with Luka Doncic is his uh, his low three-point field goal percentage. In both seasons he's been in the NBA, he hasn't shot over 32% from three. And I take that into consideration in terms of efficiency. You know, efficiency does matter. For me, it does. Uh, you know, James Harden – he scores a lot of points, but he does take a lot of shots as well, which he, which in, in retrospect he has to because, you know, the offense he plays in. But for me, efficiency matters, so I wouldn't have, you know, Luka over Kawhi. You know, a lot of times we consider points per game as like the measuring stick for, you know, how good of a scorer a guy is, but that's not the case at all because you think about LeBron James, he averages 27, 27, but he's one of the best scorers the game has ever seen. Uh, he does it, you know, in a multitude of ways. It's – you know, it, it all matters, you know, what system you're in 
you know, what your play style is. All that goes into, you know, scoring the ball. You know, Kevin Durant is a 27-point-per-game scorer. I think he could easily be in the 30s. But that's not the way he wants to play basketball. You know, with Golden State the last three years, he's averaged uh, only – not only 25, but he's averaged 25 points a game. I mean, I'm pretty sure that could be much higher, you know, with Kevin Durant's skill level. And I included him in his list because even though he is, you know, 6'11", 7 feet, whatever you want to call him, he is technically listed as a small forward. He plays like a small forward, so – I put him there, and then I put Bron in my list because, you know, Bron is really – he's listed as small forward, but I think he's really a, a point guard. Let's just be honest with you. Bron played mostly point guard this year for the Lakers. Yeah, no doubt. And like I, like I said, I definitely don't – like your list isn't egregious either, but just the fact that you had Steph Curry fifth, that just did not sit right with me, bro. Like, why? <laughs> It's more for me. It's more of a preference thing. Like I don't, I'm not one of those guys that I want to see you chunk up 15 threes a game. I hate this style of play. Like you know, I think a solid number for me. I like to see you know if guys that can shoot, you know, shoot by seven, eight threes a game. But you know, I just don't. I, for some reason, I don't like you know the chunking up three style of basketball. My thing with Steph Curry is if he's not making the three ball, then you know he's 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 gonna really struggle because of his size. You know, when he's not making the three ball, it's hard for him to get to the paint. We've seen, you know, that game seven when Kevin Love locked him up at the three-point line at the very end of the game. You know, sometimes that th- those type of things can happen with Steph Curry. And I think with those other guys, if their three ball's not working, they can find other ways to get a shot off and get a bucket. Oh, no, man. We're just going to have to disagree on that one. <laughs> That's cool with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, moving on to our next topic of discussion, uh, we know that the NBA, among other sports leagues, haven't been um, have been on a hiatus due to the coronavirus outbreak right now. Uh, so, Jimmy, uh, looking forward, when do you think would be too late for the NBA season to start? I think once the NFL season starts, I think that's too late for the NBA to be starting. I think perfect time for the NBA to, to start would be around June. I think that's the perfect time for them. You know, it gives them time to play out the playoffs, and you know, and and it doesn't bleed into the NFL season because I think you know if you bleed into the NFL season, I believe the, the ratings are going to suffer. I don't care if the NBA finals are going on or not. You know, the NFL year in and year out shows you that you know they there are some of their regular season games rate higher than you know some NBA finals games, and it's just because of the popularity of the league. So I think. You know, bleeding to the NFL season is not ideal for the NBA. Uh, I mean, of course they can compete, but I don't think that's something you want to really want to do. You want to have, you know, time alone and on your own. So I think, you know, the latest it could start is probably mid-June, you know, to give it time to get the playoffs through. But, I, you know, I saw a report earlier today that they wanted, you know, at least a month, you know, to get, you know, get the guys back in shape and stuff like that. So, you know, we'll see how that goes. But I, I, I say June, you know, I think we all want sports. Of course, we all want sports as soon as possible. So, you know, I think, you know, getting if they're able to get those guys back in the gym within the next, you know, three or four weeks or so, I think that would be perfect. You know, give them enough time to, you know, get back in shape. You know, maybe even play a few regular season games before the playoffs start. Yeah, for sure. I definitely agree uh, with the timetable you gave of around June. I was thinking that same thing, uh, maybe going to games with no fans in attendance. 
uh, because if it happens any later than June, because the playoffs take about a month to play out, like you said, it would bleed over into, like, NFL activities and things like that, and the ratings could suffer. Uh, but I was going to bring up, too, I saw shortly before we got on to record, uh, the NBA, according to Brian Windhorst, has put into place a 25-day return-to-play plan. Uh, so in that plan, it said there's there will be an 11-day series of individual workouts uh, where play out, where players would just, you know, work out individually uh, and just making sure that they're all healthy and don't, uh, you know, have the coronavirus. And then after that, the teams would gather together and have a 14-day training camp uh, in order for teams to get some five-on-five action. Um, and once again, this just shows how proactive the NBA is as a league because I think that this is perfect when you take things into account, like the fact that player, these players have been inactive and haven't been in the game action in over a month. So a big concern has to be fatigue and injuries because once your body has gone so long without, you know, having that high level of intensity, it may not respond properly when it's time for that. And injuries will definitely be a huge concern for that. Um, but going back to having it play out in June, I think that definitely be a reasonable timetable for all of that to play out because I agree with what LeBron said. If the season doesn't play out, I mean, I too won't have any closure, especially taking into account the Lakers are the number one seed right now. And I thought that AD and LeBron probably had like a pretty good chance of winning it all this year. Uh, so I definitely like to see that along with their potential playoff matchup against teams like the Clippers and possibly the Bucks in the final. Um, so I definitely love to see the NBA try to get back uh, in time for them to complete the playoffs. Uh, like you said, uh, you know, as a report stated, you know, the 25 day plan, you know, I think that that would be perfect for the NBA. Or, you know, you need guys, you know, give guys time to, you know, get tested. Uh, if tests become more readily available, I think I saw a report where the NBA was working on a way to, you know, to to speed up, you know, testing. So it won't take so long to get the results back. So I think that's a thing that needs to be, you know, looked at. Because, you know, I think we all want to see some NBA basketball. You know, I was a little sad yesterday knowing the NBA playoffs was supposed to start. You know, we missed, you know, the end of college basketball. You know, this is basketball season right here. You know, we spent our summers, you know, looking at NBA basketball for years now. For as long as I can remember, I've been watching NBA basketball during playoff time. And, you know, playoff intensity is like like none other. You know, the refs swallow the whistle a little bit more. Guys, you know, play a little harder. You know, the crowd is a little more intense, you know, and I've missed that in terms of NBA basketball. But like I said, you know, June is June is probably the perfect time for the league to start back. You start back up for in times for the playoffs. Yeah, no doubt, bro. And I completely agree with you because basketball is definitely my favorite sport over, you know, any other sports. Uh, but, you know, for a lot of fans with that long 82-game season, like we were just getting to the point where the season was really just getting started for a bunch of people. Like once you get to that final stretch of 20 games, that's when teams start fighting for playoff positioning, home court advantage. Uh, and then, you know, everything, you know, raises up. 
like 10 times more once the playoffs start. So, man, like you said, I just really hope we can get that playoff basketball back. Uh, definitely. Um, so, moving now to the next topic, um, we saw in a report from The Athletic, they had an interview with Donovan Mitchell. Uh, and at this point, it's, you know, basically said that his relationship with Rudy Gobert after what happened with the coronavirus is unsalvageable. So, Jimmy, do you think that the Jazz should trade Rudy Gobert or Donovan Mitchell? I don't believe they should. I, I believe the race, the relationship could be hashed out and it could be solvable, you know, by playing. You know, I saw where Joe Engel said, you know, chemistry, you know, will probably help the guys, you know, work things out. But I don't think you would want to trade either one of those guys. You know, Donovan Mitchell is a bona fide scorer, is a superstar in this league. And Rudy Gobert is the ultimate enforcer on the inside, blocking shots, intimidating people, you know, getting rebounds. And I think the team suffers if you lose either one of those two guys. You know, Donovan Mitchell, you know, you definitely wouldn't want to trade him. He's your best player. But, you know, Gobert is an integral part of what you like to do in Utah. Uh, in terms of defense, you know, he runs, you know, to the rim, you know, catches lobs on offense, and he's added a little bit of a post game. So you definitely don't want to lose any one of those guys. But if you're going to have to trade somebody, obviously you trade Rudy Gobert. You know, I'm looking here on Bleacher Report, and it says something about five potential trade packages. And, you know, one of the ones I like was the first one. Uh, it was saying trade Rudy Gobert for Mitchell Robinson, Bobby Portis, Reggie Bullock in a 2021st round pick. Uh, I don't know if you watched a lot of Knicks basketball, but Mitchell Robinson is exciting. He's a, a super athletic big man, seven foot tall, who can block shots and rim run and does a lot, a lot of things that Rudy Gobert does. Not as a high level, of course, but he's more athletic, which kind of fits more of uh, Donovan Mitchell's play style. So I think that would be a, a good landing place. But if you're going to trade Rudy Gobert, you got to get a you got to get a big man that can block shots and rebound. If you're going to trade him, you can't trade him and get a wing back. That's not going to work with the construction of the team. You know they have Boyan Bogdanovich, they have Joe Ingles, Donovan Mitchell, you know Royce O'Neal, Georges Niang. They have a bunch of guys on the wings that can play on the wing. You need more big man, consistent big man. So if you're going to trade Rudy Gobert, trade him for another big man that can do similar things to what he can do. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Like, ideally, uh, the Jazz would hope that they wouldn't have to trade either of these players. But it's a very high possibility that these guys, like, their relationship with each other could be permanently damaged. Like, Rudy Gobert became, like, the poster child for people who didn't take this virus seriously when it initially came out. You know, when he touched the uh, the reporter recorders at the interview and then Donovan Mitchell talked about how careless he was uh, with teammates' belongings in the locker room. Uh, and when somebody does something of that magnitude, I mean, he literally gave him a virus. Like, I don't know if there's much forgiving he can do after that, especially taking into account, too, with social distancing, they can't really see each other face-to-face. So that makes it, like, that much harder to try to, you know, mend that broken relationship. But, um, like you said, if there were – if they were forced to trade someone, Gobert is definitely the more expendable one to me because, for one, yes, he is the two-time defensive player of the year, um, and he's the identity of what that team wants to do. But 
you can find rim runners and guys who protect the rim anywhere these days in the league. Uh, so that's why I think if they were to trade him, I do like the idea of going to the Knicks. But I was thinking more so along the lines of Gobert going somewhere where he could still continue to contend. Uh, so with that being said, I was thinking either the Celtics, they came to my mind as a team that could use a center, uh, maybe trading like Hayward for salary purpose purposes, along with some draft picks and maybe a few other role players. I could see that perhaps being a deal that Utah could pull the trigger on. Or uh, another Western Conference foe, the Golden State Warriors, um, one of the more underrated things about their championship run was how good of a defensive team they were. And a big part of that was Draymond Green. But I think with his upcoming free agency impending, um, I think that they could pull the trigger and pull and trade Draymond along with their potential number one pick, which we forgot they had one of the worst records in the league this year. So they could very well uh, wind up with that number one pick. And I've seen where if they do get it, they'd probably be interested in trading it. Uh, so if you have a core of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and then you add two-time defensive player of the year, Rudy Gobert, that definitely widens their championship window to me and could put them easily in contention uh, for a possible another NBA championship run. You know, I didn't really give the Golden State Warriors a thought, but, you know, they would be a nice play for Golden State Warriors who's always in the business of making moves to contend for championships. But if I'm not mistaken, Draymond Green just signed an extension this past summer, uh, a four-year, $100 million extension, if I'm not mistaken. In his next three oh, years, you know what? You're right. You're right. Yeah, he's You're under right. contract. He's under contract for the next three years, and that fourth year, I think, is an option. Is an option year, I believe. And so he'll be an unrestricted free agent at age 24. If not age 24, I'm sorry, at age 34, if he doesn't sign another extension after that. So I don't know if you know the Utah Jazz will want to take on that contract. You know, Draymond Green. Uh, he's a good. He's a great role player. I think one of an all-time great role player. But I don't know how effective he is outside of the Golden State system. And if I'm Utah, the Utah Jazz, that's not something that I'm willing to to chance. But, you know, like I said, if you have to trade him, you know, I would. if I'm Donovan Mitchell, I would definitely be upset because he was extremely careless with a disease that we've seen has been, you know, deadly to some and it hasn't affected others at all. And when it comes to those type of things, when I mean, you can't play around, uh, you know, I think, and I want to say Donovan Mitchell said he thought he was going to play that night. It was either him or Rudy Gobert. So they went to show how it affected, how it didn't really affect them at all. But, you know, I would still be upset because, you know, you never know how to, how that, how COVID-19 is going to affect you. You know, I've seen, seen you know, reports where people have, you know, been fine one day and almost about to die in the next few days. So you never know how it's going to turn out. So I think with him being careless, and you know, I don't think, I would want to reconcile with Rudy Gobert either. But, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, over the next few weeks what is going to go on. Uh, you know, if the season, you know, continues, how that will play out in their chemistry, you know, and after this season concludes, if there is, you know, a remainder of this season, what happens going forward with this situation in Utah? Yeah, for sure. Uh, and just kind of touching back on that point you made about the trade, uh, 
that's why I believe if they did make the trade, though, that they would have to include that number one pick because we know when it comes to teams taking on, you know, big salary numbers like that with players, usually a top pick like that is a good sweetener to usually, you know, convince them to take it. And with that pick, they could easily take someone like James Wiseman who could fill in and fill that same role that Gobert did and arguably has an even better offensive arsenal than he does. And I think he he fit right along with, you know, Mitchell being only his third. I think this is his third year in the league. Um, they could grow together and, you know, possibly turn uh, Utah into a championship contender on down the line. Um, so moving on to our next topic, uh, on to some NFL news. Brandon Cooks was traded to the Texans in exchange for a second-round pick. Um, and the Texans also received a fourth-round pick from the Rams. Uh, Jimmy, what were your thoughts on this trade? I saw the trade, and, you know, I looked at it. It's like, okay, and I like my screen. <laughs> it, it still doesn't, <laughs> you know. What, what Bill O'Brien did for the Texans was nothing short of absolutely stupid. You know, you turned DeAndre Hopkins into a second-round pick, and then you t- traded that pick to get Brandon Cooks, who's on his what his fourth team now. Yep, fourth team in six seasons. And he's nowhere near the caliber receiver that you know DeAndre Hopkins is. So I mean, they add to a you know a a, a mildly talented receiving core. You know, with Kenny Stills and Will Fuller, and they added Randall Cobb in free agency. That's a that's a good group of guys. But none of those guys are, you know, they're super, They're not even close to the level of, as DeAndre Hopkins. And we've seen the type of chemistry that Watson and Hopkins was able to build these last three years in Houston, you know, and, you know, with, you know, the league, with the start of the league potentially being pushed back, you know, lack of training camp, uh, you know, they have, he has two more new receivers. So this is going to make it even harder for him, you know, to get chemistry and get in sync with those guys. So I think they can affect them, you know, going forward. But, you know, this move, I mean, it's it's a marginal move in my opinion. I don't really think it changes much for Houston. But, you know, it remains to be seen. You know, Brandon Cooks is a deep threat. But last year, you know, he, he suffered with concussions throughout his entire career. And last year in 14 games, he posted a career low in receptions with only 42. And he had his second worst yardage total since he's been in the league with 583 yards. And he had a career low in touchdowns too. And – uh. So, you know, I don't know what – I didn't really watch many Rams games last year, so I don't know, you know, what happened with that, his statistical production. I know the Rams struggled last year, you know, Todd, to run – they struggled to run the ball. The offensive line wasn't what it was in previous years. Jared Goff didn't look as good as he did the year before. So, you know, it could that could be the contributing factors to why his production dipped off so much from the year before when he had 80 catches and over 1,200 yards. But – you know, like I said, I think it's a marginal move. I don't really think it moves the needle for the Texans. Yeah, so looking at that move, you know, like you said, you know, you looked at it, locked the screen, like, okay, who cares? Uh, but for me, like, this just further digs the hole uh, for Bill O'Brien and just further in the case that his GM job needs to be stripped before he does any further damage. I mean, he's almost like, the kid with money and the kid just went reckless with the money and didn't know what to do with it. That's like him in this current GM role. Like, 
how do you trade a generational talent at wide receiver and then you essentially replace him with not one but two injury prone receivers uh I just don't get it like Brandon Cooks don't get me wrong he's a nice player but he's nowhere near the caliber of player uh that DeAndre Hopkins was and then on top of that like you said he's concussion prone it's been reported that he's had five concussions and he's only been in the league six seasons, uh, including he suffered a, a concussion in the second quarter of the Super Bowl when uh, the Rams were against the Patriots in 2018. Uh, but for me, I think Brandon Cooks, he's just not really an elite receiver. Like, other than his speed, there's just nothing else about his game that really pops out to you. Like, this isn't a dude that you just game plan for every week. Like, okay, we need to, you know, keep track of where he is at all times. Like, you can put your secondary corner on Brandon Cooks and you'd be okay with it. Uh, But just looking at this from the Texans' point of view, I just don't get it because you have now Cooks added in with Fuller and Cobb, who were already two receivers who couldn't stay healthy. Kenny Stills didn't play all 16 games last season. And then looking at it, uh, you know, asset-wise and money-wise, they gave away a second-round pick for Brandon Cooks, who, who's going to be owed as much as, like, I think $30 million, something like that over the next two years. And this is arguably the deepest receiver draft we've seen in some time. And for them to just give away a pick like that for a guy who's one more expensive, two injury prone, and three, he just doesn't really add a dimension to your offense that you didn't already have. And then on top of that, looking at it financially, they'll be paying Cooks and Cobb about $19 million over the next two years. And one of the biggest reasons DeAndre Hopkins was traded, uh, besides just the clear beef, between him and Bill O'Brien was he wanted 19 between 19 and 20 million per year for his contract extension. And I don't know about you, bro, but I'm definitely paying DeAndre Hopkins 19 million before I pay Cooks and Cobb 19 million. Uh, So I just, I just don't understand it. And then, like you said, even with the new trade, you know, they took on David Johnson's contract. When we saw the Falcons, they waited for Ty Gurley and basically signed him for nothing. Do you know what it could have been like if there was an offense with Deshaun Watson, Ty Gurley, and DeAndre Hopkins? That would have been a dynamic trio. That would have been scary for real. But, you know, they've just dug this hole for themselves. They have no first-round picks in the next two drafts uh, because they also made a trade where they gave up First round picks for Laramie Tunsil, I mean Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills with the Dolphins last season. Uh, so at this point, I don't know. There's just a lot of question marks in Houston. Uh, but if one thing's for sure, if you want to get rid of unwanted players for draft capital, you can definitely hit up the Texans. <laughs> as a coach, I think Bill O'Brien is, you know, he's average. He's okay. But as a GM, that man is terrible. He, I don't know who's allowing this man to be the GM and the coach. He's constantly made terrible decisions. I understand you had to, you know, give up a first-round pick to get your left tackle because they were getting Deshaun Watson killed in the backfield. But, you know, to to give up the second-round pick you just got to add to a strength that you already had, Kenny Stills, 
and and Will Fuller are already deep threats. And like you said, he they were just adding to another strength that the team already had. And like you said, the, this one of the, the deepest receiver drafts the league has ever seen. And you could have used that pick to get a great receiver round two if that's the direction that you wanted to go. But no, he decided to trade and take on some more salary. And like you mentioned, his contract, uh, next year he's owed uh, $8 million next year. Uh, not as much as I thought he did. But, you know, after that he's owed $12 million. Twelve? No, he'll have a cap hit, hit of $12 million in 2021. 13 in 2022 and 14 in 2023. I don't see why you wouldn't want to pay DeAndre Hopkins, you know, 20 over $20 million a year. The Cowboys gave Amari Cooper, you know, 100 years. Uh, no, 100, I'm sorry. Five years, $100 million. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is a much better receiver than Amari Cooper. And so, I mean, if you're going, if they were going to pay Cooper, you got to pay DeAndre Hopkins. Julio got paid. Uh, Hopkins is right there with, with Julio. Him and Michael, those three, those two and Michael Thomas. Uh, those are the best receivers in the league, and both of those guys are making over twenty million. So I don't think, I don't know what exempts you know Bill O'Brien from paying those type, paying DeAndre Hopkins that type of money. Yeah, bro, I definitely don't get it, but you know, ultimately, I still feel sorry for Deshaun Watson because I'm a big fan of his, and I I love to see him win the Super Bowl just as I much as just as much as I would my Forty ers but. You know, I That's just don't understand the direction. Yeah, MJ, MJ of the NFL. <laughs> but, MJ you know, I definitely <laughs> – I won't see them making any progress until they get rid of Bill O'Brien, man, because anytime I don't you either, got somebody – anytime you got someone in position of power that's putting their emotions before, you know, the business aspect of things, they shouldn't be in that position because you can clearly see that that's impacting his – his uh his been uh you know it's impacting his what am I trying to say? <laughs> it's just impacting what he's doing to that team negatively. Yeah, I, I really but, feel for Deshaun Watson. Yeah, man. So moving on to our last topic of the show, uh the NFL all decade team for the two thousand tens was released last week. Uh so Jimmy uh, did you have any issues with this team? I had absolutely no issues with this list. I know there was some, you know, some t- debate with Aaron Rodgers and Drew Brees, but I think, you know, those guys are pretty much interchangeable. They both throw for a lot of yards, a lot of touchdowns with minimal interceptions. They both, you know, Aaron Rodgers has a Super Bowl this this decade. Drew Brees had one in 2009. So, I mean, they both have a Super Bowl. Uh, Aaron Rodgers has an MVP. Drew Brees still doesn't have one, which is, a shame, in my opinion. Uh, if you take a look at the quarterbacks, it's Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers. The running backs are Frank Gore, Marshawn Lynch, Marshawn McCoy, and Adrian Peterson. I think there's no debate about that. Uh, the receivers are Antonio Brown, Larry Fitzgerald, Calvin Johnson, and Julio. I don't think nobody could debate that. Uh, in the flex, they have Darren Sproles, Darren Sproles, who's been one of the most versatile guys the league has ever seen at only five foot six. At tight end, they have you know Rob Gronkowski and Travis Kelsey. And Kelsey's one of my favorite tight ends, you know, of all time. Uh, even, you know, he's only been in the league a few years. But, you know, what he's done in that amount of time has been nothing short of amazing. Uh, in terms of tackles, they got Jason Peters, Tyron Smith, Joe Staley, Joe Thomas. Uh, at guard, they have Jari Evans, Logan Mankins, Zach Martin, Marshall Yonda in center, Alex Mack and Marquise Pounce. I think all those guys at one point or another have been 
the best at their position or arguably one of the two or three best. So I have no problem with that. You know, defense, you know, you got Calais Campbell, Cameron Jordan, Julius Peppers, J.J. Watt, Geno Atkins, Fletcher Cox, Aaron Donald, you know, and Dominican Sue. But I think my, the most exciting group for me is that linebacker group. You know, you got Chandler Jones, Luke Keekley, who's my favorite linebacker outside of Ray Lewis of all time. You got Khalil Mack, Von Miller, Bobby Wagner, Patrick Willis, who I think people have forgotten about. That man was extremely dominant. He was one of those first – one of the first linebackers he I've seen with goat. that kind of – He's one of the first linebackers I've seen with that kind of speed and range. You know, it, uh, the defensive backfield, you got Patrick Peterson, Darrell Revis, uh, Richard Sherman, you got Eric Berry, Errol Thomas, who I call the standard, uh, Eric Weddle, and you have Chris Harris and the Honey Badger. I don't have any problem with those guys either. I don't think you can really name, you know, uh, eight DBs better than those guys, you know, over this past decade. Uh, you know, as specialists, you got Johnny Hecker, Shane Leckler, Steven Goskowski, Justin Tucker, who's been the best kicker in the league for quite some time. You got Tyreek Hill, Darren Sproles again, Devin Hester, who's probably the greatest kick returner in league history. And you have Cordero Patterson. And the coaches, of course, you have Bill Belichick and you got Pete Carroll. I don't have any problem with anything on this list. I think they got it, you know, perfectly right. Yeah, I don't know. I had to disagree. And my biggest thing was I don't know how Darren Sproles got flex and, like, punt returner, like, First off, I need to know what the criteria for flex position was because there's like 10 people I could name ahead of Derek, Darren Sproles if that was like an additional running back position. Uh, but I need further clarification on that. But my guy that I had that I was taking over Darren Sproles in that flex spot, uh, it was Matt Forte. Like, how did people oh, forget yeah. about this dude? Like, Matt Forte – from 2011, he's had he's had seven seasons of at least 800 rushing yards, as opposed to Darren Sproles, who had zero, zero. Matt Forte even had a season in 2014 with the Bears where he had 800 receiving yards to go with his 1,300 rushing yards. Like, how was this dude left off the list? He was easily one of the best running backs of this decade. Mind you, he was overshadowed by guys like Adrian Peterson um, who were included on the list. But there is no way you can convince me that Darren Sproles should be in that flex spot over Matt Forte. I just don't get it. I think with the flex spot, I think it incorporates, like, you know, return or return yardages, well, you know, return responsibilities as well. But, you know, I, I always forget about Matt Forte when you think about running backs. He was always one of my favorite backs in the league. His versatility, you know, out of the backfield. Until Christian McCaffrey broke the record, he had the record for most receptions in a season by a running back. And, you know, Matt Forte is one of those versatile guys that you see in the league now that can do, you know, a little bit of everything. He was good in pass protection. But I think in terms of the flex, I think they considered, you know, his return skills as well. I don't know, bro. He if that was the case, he should have just held down that punt returning position. Like out of all players, Darren Sproles got two spots on the all decade team. Listen, you know when they make a list and 
you know when they're making lists of teams, you can't get every single thing right. This is probably one of the most accurate lists I've seen outside of, you know, the Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers thing I've seen, you know, and what you brought up, Darren Sproles. Outside of that, I don't think the rest of those players are even up for debate, to be honest with you. Oh, no, for sure. This this was definitely one of the best uh, all-decades lists I've ever seen. All those other positions were definitely correct, but this is the one that just didn't sit right with me. Because like you said, Matt Forte was one of my favorite running backs too. And he was like one of those first guys that paved the way for running backs that were, you know, effective in the run game and could catch out of the backfield and, you know, line up out wide. But I don't know, man. I just don't get how he was left off the list. You know, there's always guys in each generation that, you know, are underrated and don't get the proper – they get their proper uh, – don't what am I trying to say? <laughs> don't get their proper, proper you know attention. Yeah, recognition. I'm sorry. Yeah, the proper recognition. And Matt Forte was one of those guys. Yeah, no doubt, bro. Well, did you have anything else to add, bro? Uh, no, sir. Uh, I want to thank y'all for tuning in. All right. Well, that's all we have for you all today. Once again, happy Easter. We hope you all enjoyed your weekend with your family. Uh, we appreciate you for walk, rocking with us on First and Foremost Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 6. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, uh, and be on the lookout for our future episodes. So we're your hosts. I'm Quentin Douglas. And I'm Jimmy Covington. And we're out. All right. Thank you all.